0: This is K O O P H D HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was homecrafted and recorded on December 29th. Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We're taping the show a little early this week on account of the holidays and as of this morning, Wednesday morning, Austin Public Health has moved us back to a stage four level of risk. That's because COVID cases and hospitalizations are surging in Travis County as they are across the country and the world. During stage four, fully vaccinated and or boosted individuals are encouraged to wear masks when gathering with people outside of their household while traveling, dining, and also while shopping. Meanwhile, partially or unvaccinated people or those still needing a booster dose are strongly encouraged to wear masks at all times, avoid gatherings with people outside of their household, only travel and shop if essential, and choose takeaway and curbside options for dining. Free vaccinations are readily available, no identification or insurance required, and you can find out more information at www.austintexas.gov forward slash COVID-19. Above all, y'all be safe out there. So if you're listening to us live, it is New Year's Eve, and we are about to put another challenging year behind us. At the end of the year, it's natural to reflect on the people we've lost, and sadly, in Austin, we've lost some heavy hitters just this past week a former mayor and a lawyer in the landmark Roe v. Wade case. I've asked my news editor, Mike Clark-Madison, to come on the show to talk about the accomplishments and the legacies of these two figures. Mike, thank you for joining me. So we're talking about former Mayor Bruce Todd and Sarah Weddington, a lawyer, lawmaker, and advocate. They both died in the past week. And I'd like you to share your thoughts on these two really important figures in Austin and Texas politics.
1: Obviously, Sarah Weddington has a national reputation, international reputation, as the lawyer who won at the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, 50 years ago. The very first time that she argued, because she had to go up twice in 71, was about 50 years ago, just a couple weeks ago. And she was 26 at the time and had never argued a case in any court. She gave, you know, obviously the speech for life, as it were, and, you know, changed history. She then went on to live for another 50 years in Austin and had, you know, a fairly emblematic career, I think. You know, she represented the experience of a lot of women who were entering Austin politics and Texas politics and Texas policymaking during the same period in the 70s. She had gone to law school in the 60s, graduated in 1967, could not get a job at a law firm. So she started working on what became sort of a public interest law project with other women at UT on the issue of abortion. She had personally had an abortion during her last year in law school. She had to travel to Mexico to do it. And so, this was an issue for her and obviously for other women. But they were kind of making it up as they went along. There wasn't a long standing record of cases trying to challenge abortion regulations the same way that there was, say, for Thurgood Marshall when Brown versus Board was overturned. That was the product of like years of work from the NAACP and its lawyers, particularly Thurgood Marshall. Sarah Weddington didn't have the benefit of any of that, but they managed to come up with a case that showed that multiple places in the Constitution, there are things that you can point to to say that, well, if this is true for all Americans, if these are rights that belong to all Americans in the Bill of Rights, then that means that women should have the right to control whether or not they're going to have children. And if they're forced to do that, then those rights are being deprived. And it worked. Now, the argument that was seized upon, as it were, by Kerry Blackman in the writing of the Roe v. Wade decision was one of those several arguments, and I think others could have been made at the same time, but it was a really brilliant piece of work, almost something that would never happen again today, particularly on the issue of abortion. Of course, there is such organized opposition to the granting of this right that nothing like this would ever happen today. But so Sarah's Weddington is kind of an Austin story. You know,
0: Mike, I want to interview for a second to sort of contextualize what a trailblazer she was when this happened. And we should point out Linda Coffey was her co-counsel in yes. the Roe-Veadway case. But Mimi Swartz in Texas Monthly put the era in context of when they were going up to the Supreme Court. So I'm going to read this. Abortion was illegal in Texas except to save the life of the mother, and women couldn't even get birth control unless they were married or certified they were six weeks away from their wedding day. There were no women on the Supreme Court. There wasn't even a ladies' room in the lawyer's lounge. I mean, I think that really kind of hits home just in what Sarah Weddington was going up against and how astonishing it was when she was 26 years old.
1: Right. Yeah, we know the story like maybe a decade earlier about Ruth Bader Ginsburg being like the first woman to be able to do this, even though she faced the same sort of discrimination as a woman in law, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a more conventional background to prepare her for this. Sarah Weddington just kind of went into it all on heart, but she won. And so that created the jurisprudence that we've now lived under for the last 50 years. And of course, it's very Symbolic and sadly so, as the Supreme Court is considering undo what Sarah Weddington accomplished, that this is the week in which she dies. She has been sick for a long time. But it's worth remembering you know, that, yes, she had 50 years of life after Roe v. Wade. She represented Travis County in the legislature during the 70s. She went to work for Jimmy Carter in the White House in the late 70s. She then was a professor at UT until 2012 and generally laid the foundations for a whole bunch of what is now both a policy community around women's rights and a presence for women in politics. I mean, at the same time that she was in the legislature was when a woman named Ann Richards was the county commissioner for Southwest Travis County the last glory days of the Texas Democratic Party, pretty much starts in the 70s in Austin. Sarah Weddington's very much part of it. Now, interestingly, at the same time as this is happening, there's a guy named Bruce Todd, who, like Sarah Weddington, kind of grew up as just sort of an ordinary Texan of the mid-century generation. Sarah Weddington was from Abilene. She was like the drum major in high school and Finished high school early. So she was always like a a good, smart kid. Rushto wasn't. He was a poor kid. But through his own grit, basically built himself a successful business career in accounting. And through that, kind of hooked up with Gus Garcia, who was also an accountant. And so their careers kind of dovetailed a little bit going forward. And then, you know, found himself in a position where he ran for county commissioner, just like Ann Richards in the 80s and then from there in 1991, ran for mayor. And at the time, it seemed like Bruce Todd was kind of what the status quo for an Austin mayor has been, had been, which is kind of to be the most conservative person on liberal council, or the person who explains the progressive agenda to like the centrist business community. That's kind of been what, the mayor does. He explained Central Austin to West Austin. And Bruce Todd kind of fell into that camp. I mean, when he originally was elected, he was seen as an environmentalist and a progressive and was going to kind of be leaning forward, maybe to the left of where council had been before. What Bruce Todd did not anticipate was that it was under his leadership that the 20-year, maybe 30-year, Battle over the future of Austin as expressed in protecting the environment of Western Travis County was going to come to a head, and that the SOS fight was going to happen on his watch, and that he was going to end up being on the wrong side of it. That's Save Our Springs for. Yes, the Save Our Springs ordinance which, you know, the Saver Springs Alliance, of course, still exists as part of you know, the SOS movement. But yes, August 1992, the citizens of Austin voted overwhelmingly two to one to enact the Saver Springs Ordinance, which was a much stricter environmental regulation than had existed before in the city. That preceded, you know, years of fighting over whether SOS was going to be upheld in court. It was thrown out and then it was reinstated. And it was ruled that some people had grandfathering rights and they could build what they wanted even with SOS. So the question of whether or not we were actually going to protect the environment and what we were going to do about the causes in front of Austin was a live issue throughout Bruce Todd's mayoralty. In 1994, when he ran for re-election, it was known that he was going to get a challenge from his left, but nobody really wanted to step up. Bridget Shea and Jackie Goodman had just gotten elected as leading the environmental wing the year before. So the person who stepped up, Chronicle Politics editor, Daryl Slusher, he surprisingly came within about 2,000 votes of unseating the incumbent mayor. And that kind of changed Austin politics and it kind of left Bruce Todd in this sort of awkward position of being like the person who presided over the end of the old Austin. And then when he left office, you know, Kirk Watson succeeded him in 1997. And then he lived for another 25 years. Bruce Todd was involved in a whole bunch of stuff that was happening behind the scenes, very big in efforts, Collaborating between Austin and San Antonio, who is has big champion of projects like Lone Star Rail, but also you know champion stuff that not everybody in Austin, you know, he like went to bat at one point for building a casino on Waller Creek. So not everyone's on board, but generally, by the time like the aughts rolled around, you know, Bruce had become sort of this like kindly avuncular force of you know sort of the establishment and everyone kind of you know had put aside whatever bitterness they felt about the wars that were fought in the 1990s and made common cause until a lot of people felt like they had misjudged Bruce Todd by the time that he died so he likewise had been ill for a while and He had suffered some fairly serious injuries in a bike accident. He was a very avid cyclist. But he soldiered on. He was like a happy warrior, like kind of the last of the happy warriors of that generation of Austinite.
0: Well, and I don't want to skim over what I think is a big part of his legacy is he's largely credited with the push to move the airport.
1: Bruce Todd and Max Nofsiger probably are the two most important people. In the story of getting the airport moved from Miller to originally it was going to be moved to Manor. That vote had happened before Bruce Todd became mayor, and he kind of presided over it not happening <laughs> and just instead moving to what was Bergstrom Air Force Base, which became the airport in 1999. So, yes, that is a huge part of his legacy. You know, the convention center is part of his legacy pretty much any major public investment that happened in the 90s including a lot of the development of the water quality protection land agenda he has the legacy that we can still see today
0: well we're about out of time his family wrote a really wonderful obituary and it referenced apparently one of his frequent jokes when he talked about the end of his political career that he retired from office undefeated and unindicted, which I think is a politician in America these days. It's about as much as you can hope for. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Our listeners are interested in reading some more about these two really important political figures in Austin history and national history, as you pointed out. They can find more in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle. Mike, we'll see you again soon.
1: All right. Thanks, Kim.
0: We're gonna take a quick break and then we will be diving into the history of Austin Punk. Don't go anywhere. (music) If you're just joining us, you are listening to the Austin Chronicle show on 91.7 FM co-op community radio. If my guest and the topic of our conversation sound familiar, it's because Tim Stiegel was last on the show way back in January of 2020, talking about his ongoing history of Austin punk. We've been printing that history in the Chronicle chapter by chapter. And over the holidays, we've been running a consecutive three weeks of really pivotal stuff and the birth of a scene. So, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show again.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm sure we're going to jump around a lot with all of the great material you have in these new installments, Tim. But I want to just reorient the listeners with the project. What inspired you to be the guy to write the definitive history of Austin Punk?
2: I'll admit it was Margaret Moser passing away just a few years ago. She really should be working with me on this book, to be honest. And the book will be dedicated to her, as well as to Ed Ward, who was trying to help me find a book deal for this, and to Randy Biscuit Turner of the Big Boys. I mean, these are people I should have been talking to, or else they should be collaborating with me as I'm writing this. I mean, you know, so many of the people that helped found this scene or were key players, they're passing away. Punk rock does not make for long living in a lot of cases you know it's very much a live fast die young sort of thing yeah it was probably around the time that margaret announced she was not going to be long she was giving up her fight with cancer that i sat down with Merle hernandez then the music editor obviously
0: and we should let listeners know that Margaret was a longtime fixture of the Austin Chronicle music section and just kind of a godmother to the Austin music scene in general.
2: And to a number of writers, myself included. It felt like the minute I first walked into the Chronicle offices, Margaret was there greeting me and taking me under her wing. She was initially my big sister, and then she became my mom after my mother passed away in 2006. But yeah, I sat down with Raul. I want to write the history of Austin punk rock and nobody's done this. The story of punk anyway is a series of regional scenes and ours is so different from everywhere else. You know, everywhere else you were seeing the seeds of this scene happening in 1975. And then it kind of erupts in 76 and 77. That didn't happen here. We did have as I explained in the first chapter, two of the local figureheads of 60s counterculture, Rocky Erickson and Doug Somm, essentially created Austin's first punk single in Two-Headed Dog. But then no scene happens until, you know, three years later after the Sex Pistols were playing in San Antonio. And that's kind of where we're at right now. I kind of want to drill
0: into that a little bit because, you know, we tend to think of Austin as cutting edge and ahead of the curve. And that's interesting that you're saying that the birth of punk was slow to arrive here. Is that because we were such a blues and country town or things were a little bit more
2: laid back? Definitely. I mean, you know, you see that in the chapter that ran last week as well. It is bizarre in that 75 was the year that the whole progressive country thing exploded. It had been brewing here in town, but it was kind of a poorly kept secret in a way. And then Willie Nelson puts out Redheaded Stranger, and boom, that's it. Now everybody wants to come to Austin, come to the Armadillo. We weren't considered a music capital until that point. And then, you know, Clifford Antone starts his club up and offers a home to the blues. He was very wise in getting the fabulous Thunderbirds to be the house band there. And they got to play with a lot of the musicians that inspired them, you know. So they got to directly work with Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf or whoever like that. And so, you know, they were able to hone their chops with the actual originators. Marvelous opportunity for those guys. And in some ways, the Thunderbirds were kind of a punk band in and of themselves, in that they completely were rejecting the 70s rock ethos and going to the source, and you know, even dressing in thrift store 50s clothing and you know, playing this stripped down, raw, aggressive music. By the way, I should backtrack just a second. Raul heard me talking about how I wanted to write this book. And he said, Why don't we do like Rolling Stone did with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, or Bonfire of the Vanities, let's serialize this. We'll essentially help subsidize you writing this book. So we present the chapters as pieces here. Getting up to the 77th chapter that, you know, just ran last week, the pieces are falling into place here. Interestingly enough, most everywhere else in the world, it's the Ramones coming through town that inspires people to pick up guitars and oh i could play like that too i can do this music too that didn't happen here for some reason even though the ramones came through here twice before the year was out i believe well actually once we've got photos actually from backstage at the armadillo the night they made their austin debut which i think is so cool
0: but you're saying that the show didn't have the kind of impact here So what do you point to? I mean, I know that you sort of fingered a group as the original official, as official as anything punk gets, but who was the official first punk band in Austin?
2: The Violators, which comprised two people who later ended up being major figures in the Los Angeles music scene. Carla Olson, who was leader of the Textones, and Kathy Valentine, who became the bass player in the Go-Go's. And it was Kathy's idea to form Austin's first punk band after she had visited England and saw what was going on there. Kathy's comments have been just so phenomenal. She's a force of nature, and I really respect her immensely. You know, and they formed this band with Jesse Sublet, who is working with Eddie Munoz on getting the skunks going concurrently. So, like, the first and the second punk bands in this town are gestating over the last six months of 1977, you had Inner Sanctum Records importing the latest English singles and getting in the fanzines and all this sort of stuff. They're bringing bands like the Ramones or Robert Gordon are coming to town playing the Armadillo. They're getting, you know, these people to play in stores. You're seeing the kind of people who are eventually going to be forming bands or going down to Raoul's to see these bands kind of milling about. but nobody's really thinking of doing anything except, you know, for the violators and the skunks. It took the Sex Pistols coming to San Antonio, playing this redneck bar called Randy's Rodeo, which was very much planned by their manager, Malcolm McLaren. He thought he was going to get the necessary controversy his boys needed to have, you know. It actually ended up happening that night, and I'm going to be talking about that. But Yeah, the next chapter, which is being done in two parts, beginning this week and next, is dealing with that. I'm taking you behind the scenes and I'm showing you, you know, first of all, a very brief history of the Sex Pistols and why they were so culturally important. And, you know, then I take you behind the scenes at Warner Brothers Records as they're being signed in the U.S. And the employees of the company are wondering, should we really be messing with this band and you know, I can understand that. I mean, it's like Fleetwood Mac is just minting money for Warner Brothers with rumors that year. And that's very much the anti, never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistols. Very, very slick, very commercial rock music. It's not the Molotov cocktail that the Sex Pistols are setting off sonically. And- Malcolm McLaren is doing everything possible to make it very difficult for Warner brothers to promote this, to set up a national tour. The state department actually tries to keep them out. And the first five dates of the tour are canceled. So is their appearance on Saturday night live. Instead, Elvis Costello appears. And that ended up being a very infamous episode in SNL's history Costello got banned for life from the program that night. And then I'm going to be taking you into the tour bus as sex pistols are crossing the south. The tour manager, Noel Monk, decides to divert the tour party to Austin the day before. Get them a room and keep them away because they're getting death threats, actually, in San Antonio. this individual sex pistols are going around town creating havoc. Apparently, Neil Ruttenberg from Inter Sanctum Records ended up with Sid Vicious sitting on his couch for about six hours. Because, <laughs> you know, Noel Monk apparently was getting sick of dealing with Sid. <laughs> so it's like, let somebody else take care of it.
0: This piece is such a thrilling
2: reporting experience for you. I'll tell you something, boss. I love calling you boss.
0: <laughs> and you know what, Tim? I love hearing it.
2: <laughs> Thank you. A few weeks ago, I was interviewing John Doe from X. And I was telling him about how I managed to dig up the guy who actually threw beer at Sid and caused Sid to swing at the crowd wildly with a bass guitar, which nearly hit Margaret Moser. Always at the center of the action, right? And Yes. And I found the person who actually got hit which was a Warner Brothers employee named Ted Cohen, who turned out to be the real life inspiration for the character in Sid and Nancy from the record company trying to sell Johnny Rotten a song on the tour bus. I want a job. I want a job. I want a good job. I found the real life guy. Oh, wow. And I'm telling John about all the interviews I got for this. And he just looked at me. and he said, you've become an investigative reporter, Tim. And I never thought when I was starting out writing in fanzines in the late 80s that I would end up an investigative reporter and, you know, writing the history of Austin punk rock.
0: Well, we're awfully lucky to sort of watch you in real time as you're piecing this together. Tim, we're astonishingly already out of time, but good thing you got a lot more chapters ahead of you and we're going to keep having you back to come on the show and keep everybody updated on the progress of this book.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: We're collecting all of the installments that have run so far and all of the future ones. You'll be able to find them all at austinchronicle.com forward slash Austin-Punk-Chronicles. Tim, thanks again. I hope to see you soon.
2: I hope so too. Thanks, Kimberly.
0: And that's a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle Show. My guests today were Mike Clark-Madison and Tim Siegel, and our show engineers were Bob Daly and Andrew Solon. Our theme music was written by Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson. And a happy new year to one and all. Here's the Sex Pistols Holidays in the Sun. We'll see you next week.